The world is becoming increasingly proficient at telling stories that deny God. As such, we need Thinking Christian to become as natural as breathing. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. I'm Dr. James Spencer. Through calm, thoughtful, theological discussions, Thinking Christian highlights the ways God is working in the world and questions the underlying social, cultural, and political assumptions that hinder Christians from becoming more like Christ. Now, on to today's episode of Thinking Christian. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Thinking Christian. I am excited today uh, to have Professor Piercy from Houston Christian University on with us today on the program. Um, She is not only a professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, but a scholar in residence and the author of numerous books, including The Soul of Science, Told Truth, Finding Truth, Love Thy Body, and the one we're going to be talking about today, which is The Toxic War Against Masculinity. And so I'm really excited. This is sort of like uh, I'm going a little bit of fanboy. Um, I've been reading uh, Nancy Piercy's books for a really, really long time and uh, really just appreciate you being on the show. And uh, it's great for you to be here. So thanks for being here, Nancy. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. So let's dive in and talk a little bit about uh, the toxic war against masculinity. Um, what what was it that motivated you to write on this topic? What what brought it to your consciousness that this needed to be addressed? You know, it, it was largely the hostility that I saw against men, even in respected mainstream publications. Like the, the particular article that really triggered me was an article in the Washington Post, which, which was titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And I thought, really? Huh. Uh, a Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. You can buy T-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. And then there are even books that are coming out very bluntly titled, like, I hate men, and no good men, and the end of men. And to my surprise, by the way, there were also some male authors jumping on the bandwagon. So uh, there was a male author who wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And then the final one, which is actually not in the book, but you may have seen it because it was in the news. So the uh, director of the movie Avatar, uh, James Cameron, uh, was quoted in the news saying, do you remember this? Testosterone is a toxin and you have to work it out of your system. So when I saw that it had become so socially acceptable to attack men this way, I said, we've got to get to the bottom of this. Where's this coming from? Um, you can't really stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from and how it developed. And so that was my goal yeah. in this book is to kind of help people get a sense of where is this coming from and how can we stand against it more effectively? You know, I, it, having read the book, I mean, I think I have a good sense of where um, you'd say it came from. And I think one of the most compelling parts of the book actually is the shift from what you call, a, I believe, a covenantal sort of uh, social relationship to a um, contractual or social contract theory sort of imagination. Could you talk through that just a little bit? Oh, yeah. I love to talk about this um, because I think it has affected a lot of Christians and they don't know it. You know, we use the language of covenant when we talk about marriage, for example. But we've been very much influenced by um, a secular culture that, that, that the technical term is social contract theory. Social contract theory was the idea that um, it it was during the early modern era when social philosophers, political philosophers, 
were trying to find an alternative to Christianity as the basis for modern culture. These were guys who were, you know, out to, you know, get rid of Christianity and form a new basis. Well, you know, up until then, the basis of our social institutions was covenant, not just marriage, but obviously church and even the state. You know, God had God had established the, the state and we obey God by obeying the state. So uh, and this and it was God's principles of justice and fairness and right, you know, what's right versus what's wrong. Uh, that was the foundation for politics. And so it was a big job to see, can we kick God out of politics? And the early modern thinkers, we're talking about Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. And what they did yeah. is they said, let's just suppose that uh, society, human society began not in the Garden of Eden, but in a state of nature. And in the state of nature, which was obviously a substitute for the Garden of Eden, uh, humans had no social relationships. There was no marriage. There was no state. There was no civil society. People are running around under the trees as autonomous, disconnected, uh, independent individuals. And then the state is formed when these individuals come together and form a contract, you know, an agreement. So there's nothing organically connecting people. Um, there's, there's nothing, you know, there's, it's all choice. It's all choice. Here's how one uh, political philosopher puts it. Liberalism at the heart is a claim that we can have no obligations to which we have not consented. So consent makes it everything. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't seem so bad in politics, consent of the governed. But the the attitude of contract then permeated all of our social institutions so that, uh, you know, marriage is now treated mostly as a contract. And what's the difference? You know, a covenant is where two people, you know, unite their lives. A contract is what an exchange of goods and services, you know, and it lasts yeah. only as long as it's benefiting me. And so a lot of people do treat marriage like, well, as long as I'm happy, but if I'm not, I'm out. And even abortion, um, it, there's a, our, our abortion law is based on the notion that the, the mother is not organically connected to the child, <laughs> that she has a right to you know, consent or not consent. Right? It's social contract theory. And that's how our, yeah. our laws about abortion are, are labeled. Uh, that's how they're framed. So even something as intimate as, you know, you grow a baby inside of you, if you're a woman, yeah. um, that that is not considered an, an organic uh, relationship. In my book, Love Thy Body, I actually quote some li- liberal f- uh, philosophers who say, um, you know, the, the, the fetus is an intruder. It's like my private, this is my private property and the fetus is an intruder and I can drive him off if I want, even to the point of killing him. It's, it's a matter of self-defense. So that, that is, yeah. that's how deeply contractual thinking has permeating, has permeating uh, the, the American society. And I think even a lot of Christians kind of treat marriage that way as well. So it's, it's a big change. And um, it, so, yeah, in the, in the book, I show how, well, to bring it to the topic of masculinity, I show how that especially influenced concepts of masculinity because men were no longer thought to be just naturally, organically um, having certain obligations to their wives and children. Instead, it was, well, it's a contract. So I have obligations if I choose. And if I choose not to, I'm out of here. So it's a big part of why masculinity has become in some ways harmful or toxic in, a sec- in its secular version, because men no longer feel 
that that covenantal relationship with their wives and children? So I have a I have a couple of follow ups to that. Um, number one, I you know I'm most familiar with like Emile Durkheim and after the French Revolution, you know, where they're they're sort of really separating the church out and making it, you know, trying to marginalize it as a a moral authority within society. And he's advancing sociology and as a as sort of a substitute religion, let's say, right? Um, and there's a reason that that is coming about. What was the reason for um, you know Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau to to make these shifts within American culture? Was there something that was pressing in? Was this related to industrial revolution kind of thing? Was this related to like what needed to change that it made sense to move from? you know, covenantal social contract theory. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, 
I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Well, um, two answers. One is uh, the, the person who has done the best work on this, I think, is a French political philosopher named Pierre Manon. And he, very op- by the way, he's a former Marxist who converted to Catholicism. And so when he writes this book, he says, well, they were really trying to get rid of the church <laughs> um, because the church was the primary society by that time, right? Um, the yeah. church had pretty much overcome ethnic divisions and racial divisions, um, national divisions. Remember, Paul, there, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no male right. or female. There's no slave or free. But it took a long time for that to actually change society. And what happened is the church then became the overarching um, so- social institution that gave a, a community, might be a better word. The church, in a sense, sure. replaced all of these other loyalties, all these other commitments. You know, we were Christians first, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, there was, there was um, in France, there was in the early church, there was a young man who was being persecuted for his faith. And they kept asking him, well, who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? And he just said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. It's a really fun story of where all of his other identities were totally overwhelmed by the fact that I'm a Christian and that's first. And so to overcome that, secular thinkers had to say, let's see if we can... Uh, get rid of the impact of the church. We don't want that to be people's primary community anymore. If, you know, if they were not Christian. So Pierre Manon says that was their primary motivation. I like the fact though, that you've also brought in the material conditions of the industrial revolution, because ideas don't really take, you know, they don't really permeate until, you know, society changes. And the industrial revolution had a huge impact on concepts of masculinity uh, most of us think the concept of toxic, toxic masculinity came from like the 1960s, uh, second wave feminism. Yeah. But actually, you see it starting already in the 19th century. So before the Industrial Revolution, men worked alongside their wives and children all day right, on the family farm, the family industry, the sure. family business. And so concepts of masculinity, ideals of what it meant to be a man focused much more on their caretaking role, on their responsibility for their family. Authority was defined even in terms of responsibility for the common good. It didn't mean you get to do whatever you want. You know, it meant you were responsible for your family. Um, And it's fun when you can read even secular historians say things like, uh, masculine virtue was defined as duty to God and man. Um, yeah. So the question is, where did we lose that? And you're right. The Industrial Revolution was a key, a key changer. Um, it took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into offices and factories. And for the first time in American history, they were not working alongside people they loved and had a moral bond with, you know, their wives and children. 
Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this did have a change on their character. Uh, And this is where you see the literature start to change. People started to complain. They started to protest that men were becoming egocentric, self-centered, aggressive, greedy, acquisitive. I'm using the language of the day. Um, and, And I was surprised how many people said they were making their work into an idol. In the 19th century, mm-hmm. you find a lot of people saying men are starting to make career success. You know, a financial achievement has become more important than, than caring for my family. So that was the beginning of uh, the, the change in the language describing men's. It was the first time ever that men's character was described in negative terms. And so, of course, If we want to figure out how to solve that problem, we have to go back and say, okay, it was when men got disconnected from their family. Uh, That suggests the solution has to do with reconnecting men with their family, even in an industrial age. Are there ways that we can still do that? And so what strikes me in all of that, and you make a comment at one point that, um, you know, people's perception of Jesus and his followers and the ideals of masculinity that they exhibit really aren't the sort of masculine characteristics that we normally see in men. You know, it's about harmony and fellowship and community as opposed to um, aggressiveness and competition, and you know, violent acts or what have you. And so, you know, now we've sort of lost this, what is masculinity? We've got almost a false sense of what masculinity actually is. Is that what people end up identifying as sort of, quote unquote, toxic? Yeah, well, um, I would say it's it's the secular definition of masculinity that has become toxic. Okay. Um, let me give you a study. I start the book with this study because I found... I found that this book is more controversial than any book I've ever written. Um, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, um, because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, was on questions of abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. Right. It, it, I mean, people are like, people are saying that book is more relevant now than when you wrote it. Um, but, but actually, in the Christian world, this one has been more controversial. Uh, when I write a book, I always do a lot of reading groups because I want to rub off the rough edges. And okay. in my reading groups, uh, and I also teach in my classes, so I get lots of feedback. That's that's my goal. And when they told their friends and family that they were working through a manuscript on masculinity, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? like what <laughs> you have to have a side yeah. so men tended to <laughs> men tended to assume that if a woman was writing a book on masculinity that i was a male bashing feminist and more okay. progressive types tended to assume that i was some um, reactionary culture warrior you know defending men um and so i did put this study right at the beginning of the book because it tended to overcome mm-hmm. that initial suspicion <laughs> Um, so okay. it was done by a sociologist named Michael Kimmel, and he is invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a very clever experiment. He would ask young men two questions. First, he would say, what does it mean to be a good man? If you had a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And this sociologist said 
Young men all around the globe had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing things like duty, honor, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a protector, be a provider. Oh, and look out for the little guy. I kind of like that one. Um, Be responsible. (laughs) And he would ask them, where did you learn that? And they would say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. But then he would follow up with a second question. He would say, what does it mean if I say to you, uh, man up, be a real man? And the young men said, oh, no, no, that's completely different. They said that means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, um, suck it up, play through pain, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. And again, I'm, I'm using their language. Yeah. Um, and so this, the sociologist concluded that there actually are two competing scripts that young men feel today. On the one hand, universally, they recognize what it means to be a good man. Uh, and this is very encouraging. I mean, I, I was very heartened yeah. to read this. Not, even in non-Christian cultures, you know, apparently it's, it's intrinsic. It's innate. It's because men are made in the image of God that they do know what it means to be a good man. Uh, And and another, by the way, another social, another study, this one by an anthropologist found something very similar. It was the first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And he said that despite the differences in cultures, all cultures share a common code for manhood, that the good man will provide, protect, and procreate. He calls it the three P's. Provide, protect, and procreate, <laughs> meaning become a father, you know, build yeah. into the next generation. And so both of these were global studies showing that men do know that their unique masculine strengths, because they do have unique strengths, uh, were given them not to get what they want, but to provide, protect, care for those that they love and are responsible for. But on the other hand, of course, there are, there's this competing script what what the young men yeah. responded to as the the real man, which if if it's separated, if it's detached from a moral vision, can become entitlement, dominance, control. You know the things that we tend to yeah. c- consider more toxic. The Andrew Tate phenomenon, right? Fast cars, fast money, fast <laughs> yeah. girls. Um, yeah, yeah. That has become kind of the secular script of the the quote unquote real man, and so. On the one hand, um, this gives us a much better way to approach these issues, right? Most men don't respond well to being called toxic. (laughs) Nobody would. Uh, So it's much better to to try to support them, encourage them, affirm them in what they intrinsically and innately know is the good man. And on the other hand, uh, we need to sort of trace the roots of the real man and help people to see through it. and, and a lot of my book is taken up with, you know, where did the real man come from? How did our society yeah. become so secularized that it's led to Andrew Tate? Andrew Tate, I'll, I'll just give you one more anecdote. This was a yeah. former graduate student of mine who now teaches at a Christian school. And she recently emailed me and said, all my, all my male students are into Andrew Tate. She teaches high school. All my male students are fans of, of Andrew Tate. You know, they're even using his quotes in the yearbook. And and I said, well, where do you teach? At a classical Christian school. So even young Christian men are wow. reaching out to these online influencers. 
we have to help them to be able to think critically about where the secular script for the quote unquote real man comes from so that so that they have a critical grid in place and can figure out what's biblical and what's not biblical. Well, let me let me stop us there for a minute. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to dive into that issue. That's really sort of amazing to me that that any Christian, even a young Christian man would gravitate toward Andrew Tate. Um, and so I'd kind of like to dig into that a little bit more. But let me take a break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll kind of dig into it. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, this is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. It goes without saying, but the Bible has changed so many lives. Take a second and think about it. If you didn't have access to a Bible or were even allowed to have one, This is a reality that many are facing. That's why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my book, Christian Resistance. Simply text THINKING to 71326 to help today. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Or visit give.crew.org backslash thinking. Again, that's give.cru.org backslash thinking. Message and data rates may apply. Available to U.S. addresses only. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are here. We're going to continue the uh, conversation with Professor Piercy. And uh, before we went to break, you had mentioned this influence of Andrew Tate. And I've kind of watched Andrew Tate uh, from afar. I've watched some of his YouTube stuff and those kind of things. Um, I would say, especially after reading your book, um, I didn't know too, too much about him. I think I probably, you know, just moved past him because I didn't get the attraction. What is it that you think? I, I mean, I guess to me, when I when I hear you talk about, you know, true masculinity and you have these things like integrity and honor and, you know, duty and caring for the little guy, for whatever reason, I gravitate more toward those than I do to things like aggressiveness, competitiveness, um, you know, vulgarity, <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, promiscuity, maybe. You know, all those things. And uh, like, I realize I've got a unique background, you know, coming out of theological studies. And so maybe that has a bigger influence. But I'm just wondering, why do you think that part of it, the bad side, um, is so much more compelling than the good side? Or how are they confused? 
Um, by the way, um, to bring you up to date, I didn't, by the way, I didn't get Andrew Tate into my book either. And I, in, in hindsight, I wish I'd been right. one, you know, on top of these trends. Uh, but now uh, there's a new, there's a new one who has been hailed in uh, the New York Post as the new Andrew Tate. His name is Myron Gaines. And his tagline is, I help men transform from simps into pimps. Um, and he argues specifically that the relationship between men and women has always been transactional. And here's a direct quote from his book. All men are Johns. All women are whores. And, and he's being hailed as, you know, the next Andrew Tate. So where does this come from? I think it comes as a reaction to the fact that men and boys are falling behind and have been for quite a while. You know, boys are falling behind at all levels of education. Starts in kindergarten. You know, they don't have the same yeah. fine motor control that a girl has. And so they can't handle the scissors as well. So they already feel like they're falling behind. Um, and all the way up to high school, you know, girls are doing better in, in grades in terms of um, homework and grades and in terms of extracurricular activities and so on. And then college. College is now... Uh, on average, are sixty percent female in their students, forty percent male. More women than men go to graduate school and even professional schools like law and medicine. And so there have been a host of books that have come out on why boys are falling behind, with titles like "Why Why Boys Fail," "The Trouble with Boys," "The War Against Boys." So people have been noticing this. Um, and then when those boys grow up, they're falling behind too. Men are doing worse than they were in the past and worse relative to women. Men are much yeah. more likely than women to be homeless, to be drug addicted, drug or alcohol addicted, to be to have mental illness, uh, to commit crime. 90% or more of prison inmates are, are male. And, and unemployment um, is not showing up in the unemployment statistics because they've stopped looking for work. And so researchers yeah. had to go a little deeper, and they now tell us that male unemployment uh, during the key uh, earning er uh, ages is at Great Depression era levels. Great Depression wow. era. I mean, that was shocking when I read that because we we remember what a <laughs> you know what a tragedy that was, and then yeah. life expectancy has gone down. You know, women's has stayed the same, but men's has gone down so that. Uh, a magazine called The New Scientist had an article in which it said the major demographic factor now for early death is being male. And so, and even in Christian circles, so, you know, I teach at Houston Christian University. And when I told my class, I was writing a book on masculinity, a male student shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Thanks for joining us for this first segment of the interview with Nancy Piercy. We've got about another 25 minutes left, and so we're going to air that tomorrow. But this is a really important topic, and the rest of the conversation is uh, as fascinating as the first part. Nancy has just amazing things to say. She's really up on this topic. I'd encourage you to go check out her book, uh, The Toxic War Against Masculinity on Amazon.com. Uh, order that. Check out her other books too. Um, she's a fantastic writer and author and thinker. Half of this interview with Nancy Piercy. Take care, everyone. Just want to take a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the Thinking Christian podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. 
Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com.